Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So there are so many things um, going on today. We've had a cross procession. It's the first day of the uh, Domitian fast, and we're remembering the seven um, Maccabean martyrs. Lots of things happening today. So uh, as I was preparing the sermon, I was doing the readings, and you might not have seen it in the version of the epistle reading that you have in your variables, but uh, if you read the passage from Romans in the Bible, about halfway through it, from verse 9 of Romans chapter 12, you see the heading, Behave as Christians. And I think that that's a very fitting kind of topic for today, uh, given that we're starting a fast and commemorating the cross. So um, in this epistle reading, if you, just a little bit of background on, on what's happening in Romans. Um, Father Stephen DeYoung has a really good verse-by-verse um, uh, Bible study and in his introduction to Romans he's talking about what's happening in the whole the whole book of Romans and what's happened in Rome at this time is that at a certain point the of course the Roman church had Gentiles who people who were from Rome and it also had Jews who were living in Rome and at a certain point in time the in one of the many instances where the Romans looked for a scapegoat they kicked the Jews out of Rome. And so for a time, there was only Gentiles in the church in Rome, while the Jews were living in other places. And when they came back, then there was some, some issues that needed to be dealt with. And St. Paul was dealing with those issues. And so this passage that we read today is, is a part of that. And just before this in chapter 11, he's talking about um, all the different ways in which the Jews had been, the Jews had been taken out, they'd been, or an unfruitful branch had been cut off, okay? those sorts of things, and the Gentiles have been grafted in. And so we're talking about this type of dynamic that's going on um, in the church in Rome. So he's talking about, to the people of the church in Rome, saying, you have all these gifts that God gives you, okay? So in the epistle reading, St. Paul says that we all have gifts, and we need to use those gifts according to the grace and the faith that God has given to us. So when he says that these gifts are given to us according to grace, what he means is that we've received the Holy Spirit, and God's energies are working in us. And so he is empowering us through those energies to do specific things in the church. Um, some people are empowered to prophesy or preach, others to lead, others to give alms liberally, um, still others to show mercy, and there's many, many other ways in which we have particular gifts. But Paul's uh, purpose here is to say, Yes, you have all these gifts, but the way that you use them is really important. The way that you live your life is really important. The way you exercise these things is really important. So St. Paul's saying it's, it's not enough that we are empowered. We also have to use them, but we have to use them well. We have to live a life which is well-pleasing to God at the same time. So in the... Um, in the next part of this passage where he's talking about living as a Christian, which I'll come to in a minute, um, he's talking about exactly that. How do you live this life? So we often focus on gifts in our society in particular. We love to talk about our, our gifts, what makes us special, um, what stands out about us and what we do well. It seems to be something that we really prize. But in many ways, what makes us all the same as a community, is even more important. The life that we live, what type of life do we live? Okay? So this is um, what St. Paul is saying. These things that underlie our whole life and how we live 
is really important, even in a sense more important than the gifts, because without that underlying life, the gifts don't lead to salvation by themselves. It's the underlying life that leads to salvation. So behave like Christians, as St. Paul says. And he says in that passage, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be kindly and affectionate to one another with brotherly love, in honour giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Bless those who persecute you, bless and do not curse. So we're all called to a different kind of life and we actually need to live that life. It can't just be in name only, it has to be in deed. We can't rest on the fact that we are just baptized, we've been baptised and chrismated and that our families have been Christians for many generations. The Jews did this. If you remember in the Gospels, they were always saying we're the children of Abraham. In Ezekiel chapter 19, God tells the people of Judah through, through Ezekiel and they're in exile in Babylon. And he says to them that if you do good, then you will live. If you do evil, you'll be destroyed. But he also says to them that even though their ancestors were wicked, he would not hold that against them. What he doesn't say but is implied is the corollary of that, which is that you can't get any credit for your ancestors' righteousness either. Right? Everything depends on how we live our lives now. Not on what our, not on what our ancestors did, not on whether they grew up in an orthodox country, and all of those things that are great, but they don't mean much when it comes to our salvation. We have to live the life. So yes, it's very common in the scriptures to see the Jews saying, but we have Abraham as our father. And Jesus says, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works that he did. If you don't do the works that he did, you're not Abraham's children. It's as simple as that. Okay, so it doesn't mean that we need to live a perfect life. We need to, live in, we need to try and attempt to live in the way that St. Paul describes. It doesn't mean we need to live a perfect life. What does it mean, though, to live that life as a Christian? Let's think about what it means to be a man after God's own heart. King David was described in that way. Was King David a perfect man? If you read the story of King David, you find out very quickly that he's far from a perfect man. He has a very quick temper and he likes women. Those are his two major faults, King David, right? And he gets into a lot of trouble over those things. But what, what is it about the King David that makes him a man after God's own heart? Well, let's look at a couple of instances. Um, when he's on the run with his men early on, um, he goes to a certain place and he's looking for some food and some uh, hospitality from a guy called Nabal. And Nabal says, no, go away, rather foolishly, because David was armed and so were all his men. David gets really angry and he feels like he's been insulted and he's going to go and kill him. He's going to go and kill Nabal and kill all his men and take what he wants. And Abigail, Nabal's wife, hears about this and says, oh no, I better do something. And so what she does is she goes and gets all of the supplies that they need, she brings them and then she intercedes for her own husband on his behalf and he's saved. But David, at that moment, when she comes, realises what a fool he's been and how close he was to committing murder. 
and he repents. He repents wholeheartedly of what he was about to do. Now, it turns out that actually Nabal died, but it wasn't at David's hands. So he repented. Another instance is, of course, with um, Bathsheba. Bathsheba is bathing on the roof. David sees her. He wants her. And he gets her. But he also, he also arranges for Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, to be killed. So that's basically not murdered directly by his own hand, but he certainly arranged it. And so he was responsible for that. And you might think, well, that's a terrible thing. But, you know, think of the times. In the times in that world, these types of things that kings did, you know, in that ancient world. But when he's confronted by Nathan the prophet, what happens? We get his heartfelt and complete repentance. And we get Psalm 50, which we use all the time in the prayers of the church. For the, the, ultimate, the ultimate prayer or psalm of repentance is Psalm 50. That's what we get from, from David. So what does it mean to be a man, a man after God's own heart? It doesn't mean to live perfectly. It means that when we fall, we turn back to God in wholehearted repentance and follow him. We see it again in the New Testament with St. Peter, of course. He denies Christ, comes back and is forgiven, and he becomes one of the greatest apostles. We also see the negative example of Judas. Judas, who followed Christ for all those years, he could have repented. Even after he betrayed Jesus, he could have repented. Now, Jesus knew he wasn't going to, but he could, he could have. He always had the potential to. And so he went to his destruction. So that's what it means to live that life. We attempt to live in the way that St. Paul describes. But when we fall, we turn back to God in repentance and start again, start afresh. All right, so that's kind of living the life. I just want to look at a quick example now, actually, from the Gospel. I want to talk about the entire Gospel reading, just the, the very start of it, really, where the men bring the paralysed man on the mat to see Jesus. So we hear this story about these men bringing the, the paralysed man on a mat and they put him down before Jesus, hoping that Jesus will heal him, and he does. But St. Jerome points out that, and if you listen, listen carefully to that reading, St. Jerome points out that Jesus sees not the faith of the paralysed man, he sees the faith of the ones who bring him. And he points this out, that it's not the paralysed man's faith that he sees, it's the faith of those who bring him to, to see Jesus. So even though the paralytic, paralytic man doesn't necessarily display that faith, nonetheless Jesus forgives him of his sins and then heals him. Uh, St Peter Chrysologos, writing about this, says, Note in this regard, my brothers, that God does not inquire into the wants of those who are deliriously ill. He does not wait to see the faith of the ignorant or probe the senseless wishes of the sick. Yet he does not refuse to help the faith of another, so that by grace alone he confers whatever is proper to the divine will. In other words, what he's saying there is that if you love someone else and you're interceding for them, that person who you're interceding for, it's not necessarily their faith or, or anything about them necessarily that brings God's help to them. It's the fact that God hears your, sees your faith and he intercedes for them, he helps them. Okay, That's why it's so important that we pray for everyone. Pray for all people everywhere, our leaders, everyone. So we see because of their genuine love for their friend, 
having faithfully acted upon that love to bring their paralyzed friend to Jesus, Jesus, seeing their faith, healed him. St. Hilary of Poitiers, in his commentary on Matthew, goes as far as to say that this man was brought to Jesus by ministering angels. He describes these men as ministering angels. Just as these men were like ministering angels to their friend, we also should be like ministering angels to those who are around us. So I started off talking about the gifts that God has given us and how we should use those gifts to serve others in humility. But we have so many more opportunities to serve others in all kinds of small ways every day. In fact, our lives are made up almost entirely of these small things, but they're not small. Our life and our salvation, our road towards theosis, is those small things that we do every day. That's how we move along that path. So those acts that we do can help others and therefore help their salvation and also ours, or they can hurt others. And then that would lead them to destruction and also us. So again, it comes back to how we behave, how we act, how we work and live in the world. In the first centuries of Christianity, the entire pagan world was overturned by people who lived like this. The seven Maccabean martyrs being a good example. What's so big about not eating pork? To them it was a big deal, right? Their way of life... In their way of life, you don't eat pigs, and the law it said don't do it. So it seems like a small thing to say Antiochus Epiphanes, but not to them. So they refused, and they died. They, they persevered, and they got their reward. So as we begin the fast, let's not only focus on the foods that we eat and don't eat. We always talk about those kind of things when it comes to a fasting period, but Let's look at all the myriad little things that we do every day and think about those things and how they are related to our life in Christ so that little by little we become the bearers of help to all of those who are around us in our time and in our place. Amen. Thank you.